Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn how to relieve anxiety and break free from busyness. My first guest is Dr. Judson Brewer. He is an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist. He is an associate professor in the School of Public Health and Medical School at Brown University. His 2016 TED Talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, has been viewed more than 16 million times. Judd has trained Olympic athletes and coaches, government ministers, and business leaders, and he's in the house to once again talk about his newest book, Unwinding Anxiety, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind. Dr. Judd, Help us. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Anxiety reduction part two. Yeah, what, what did Luke Skywalker say? Help me, Obi-Wan. Yes. Or no, was it Leia? Princess Leia. Help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. Well, I, I wouldn't put myself at the same stratosphere as Obi-Wan Kenobi, but I do like that line. Yeah. Help. Yeah. Help, help us. Help us help ourselves. For those of us who have still, you know, not been able to tamp down the anxiety enough to exhale, what's going on and what do we do about it? Yes. Well, I think we've seen ongoing waves and waves and waves of uncertainty. And I think, you know, that's that's really the first place to start is, you know, making sure that we understand what's happening in our minds in particular and using that understanding, you know, for our benefit so that we can help, help ourselves work with our own minds. And when we talk about, you know, working with our mind, we're talking about more than just self-talk. Oh, absolutely. This is, <laughs> this is not about self-talk. I wish self-talk talk worked better than, uh, you know, than it actually does. This right? is really about <laughs> tapping into the deeper parts of our brains where, you know, we really understand how we form habits, for example, and how we become reactive, for example, to uncertainty, and then using those stronger parts of our brains to be able to work with it. Like the whole just say no thing, I think has been proven to be an epic failure. As much as we'd love it to be true, because it's so simple. Uh, yes, epic failure for sure. Face plant, face plant. <laughs> That that's true. So let's let, let's talk about the garden variety anxiety that the average person feels each day. They get up in the morning. They are trying to get into their routines. 
there's there's news, there's social media, there are the kids, there's the spouse, there's the animals, there's life, there's life and death occurring at the same time that everything else is occurring. How do we um, harness our energy and manage these waves that seem to be coming in rapid fire succession? I think one simple way to look at this is, you know, you, we can group there's there's one commonality here, which is anxiety is basically like this fear of the unknown or fear of the future. And so here, if we can start to recognize when we're getting caught up in that, you know, the fear of the unknown or the fear of the future or just, you know, there's some new snippet of uncertainty that pops up on the news like, oh, this new variant, is it going to be resistant to vaccines, for example? Well, there's uncertainty there that can freak us out. And us freaking out probably isn't going to answer the question. <laughs> or protect know? us from, from it either. <laughs> yeah, it could actually make things worse because the more anxious, you know, anxiety has been shown to decrease our immune, our immune system function. So if you really look at it at a molecular level, it's actually making our immune system less effective by being anxious. And so we can even get anxious about that. Oh no, I'm getting anxious, which is making my immune system not as functional. Oh no, oh no, oh no. So it's really about being able to pull ourselves off that ledge of anxiety that really comes from this basic and very common experience of uncertainty. And when we go into that worry phase and the anxiety making us anxious, what are some ways that we can hit the pause button? Because it's not, it's like you said earlier, it's not about talking yourself through it. Maybe it's about doing yourself through it. Yes. Yes. And the doing is really about grounding, about grounding ourselves in our present moment experience. So the first step is to check to see how far our mind has spun out into the future, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So it could be, we're already five years down the road thinking of ourselves as destitute in the gutter, or it could be, you know, a month down the road wondering whether what's going to happen with schools or the economy, or it could even be a day down the road where we're thinking about some reopening event and we're anxious about that. It's really about anchoring ourselves in what we actually have, which is, this moment. That's really all we have. That's the first place. And the grounding, it really can come down to a number of different practices. You know, I, lo I love some, I learned this uh, simple saying from somebody where they said, you know, this guy said, well, I just tell myself to feel my feet as a way to remind himself to ground himself in his present moment experience by feeling what his feet feel like. Yeah. Whether we're standing or sitting that can be something where it literally makes us feel more grounded in the present moment. And that is a very simple, cost-free, drug-free, <laughs> side-effect-free <laughs> side <effect -free laughs> intervention available at any time, 24-7, no prerequisite required. That's right. You don't even know, need to go to your drugstore to pick it up. You right. just need to go to your own awareness. Yeah, go to your own awareness. I, you know what? I actually do that exercise, and I like to do it with one shoe on and one shoe off because it adds another oh, dimension of noticing. I love it. I love that. Yes. It can kill an anxiety attack on the spot. For sure. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Mic drop. Because <laughs> where so that's is a your good mind? Point. I'll mention one other. I, I'm curious. You probably know this one as well. And I don't know if we've talked about this before, but five finger breathing is also one of my favorites. Where oh, we're no. Take us through it. Oh, yeah. So basically, uh, if we've got, 
yeah, we can this can be modified for anybody that doesn't doesn't have five fingers on both hands. Uh, but basically, taking the index finger of one hand and placing it at the base of the pinky on the other, and as they breathe, as we breathe in, we trace up the outside of our pinky. As we breathe out, we trace down the inside. As we, I'm doing this right now. As we breathe in, we trace up the outside of our ring finger. As we breathe out, we trace down the inside of our ring finger. We'll do one more. As we breathe in, we trace up the outside of our middle finger. And as we breathe out, we trace down the inside. And so it's called five finger breathing because as you trace your hand once, you've uh, taken five mindful breaths. And the way, the reason I love this, and we can do five, 10, 15, 20, this really grounds us because it forces our awareness into four dimensions at once, two, th- actually three tactile dimensions. So the feeling of two fingers and of our breath, and then seeing, watching our hand as we do it. And our brain, our working memory can really only hold about four things at once from my, what I understand. And so if we're kind of filling up that working memory space, it's crowding out the worry thoughts. And when we finish, we're, we feel a little more grounded. And so if those worry thoughts come back in, there's a mismatch in the uh, arousal level. So we feel grounded and those thoughts come in and say, oh, you should be anxious. But our body says, yeah, I'm not really feeling it. And it's much easier to notice those thoughts and let them go rather than getting caught up in them. If our body is feeling anxious and our thought and our mind is you know, thinking anxious, then those two are going to feed off of each other. It, it it did something else for me. First of all, it's very sensuous, right? So you're really like yes. connecting yourself with yourself. That's a very uh, lovely sensation. And being aware that you're sort of occupying the body. Yes. Yes. I like that. I mean, that's, that's, a, I'm, I'm going to use that one. <laughs> I want to tell some folks about that one. It's free. It's, it's side free. effect free. It's available to anyone. Yes. <laughs> well, and this is the thing as people are returning to work and I'm, and I'm getting a lot of calls now want people wanting programming, like how do you return to work? How can we reboot people? How can we help them reintegrate back into the workspace? Everybody is, is so anxious. So I think this is very, very timely and topical because I think almost everybody has some kind of reservation about returning to their new normal outside of the house, outside of their bubble? Yes. Well, part of this is that we've uh, hit some type of a steady state in terms of what our new normal over the last year has become. And this highlights how our brains work. So we become habituated to things. We become used to them. The, The working from home, for example, is familiar. And so just thinking about doing something outside of what is familiar is scary to our brains because our survival brains are saying, oh, is there danger out there? But really, it's just different. And different does not equal danger. Yeah, but the mind goes into that fight or flight response, right? So because it's unknown territory, you feel like the saber toothed tiger is going to be breathing down your neck when you go to your office. Absolutely. And so just recognizing that and maybe even just asking ourselves, oh, is this really dangerous or is this different? You know, and, and that can really help us alleviate some of that uncertainty and, and just say, oh, well, this is something that I haven't done in a while. OK, maybe it's not that dangerous. Well, I think baby steps, maybe, you know, that instead of trying to sort of scale the whole mountain to return to a new normal, maybe it's, you know, these baby baby steps or these two foot tosses, as one of my professors used to call them. 
Yes, absolutely. I love that. Two foot toss. Two foot yeah. tosses. <laughs> and, and, you know, how do we update the software system in our minds, in our brains to, I don't even know if I'm wording this right, you know, to, to adapt to the new reward, you know, for trying something new. Well, here, I think the, you could think of it as the grease or the solvents or the mixing batter or whatever the analogy would be is curiosity. You know, that's really that piece that helps things come together uh, where we can lean into uncertainty and rather instead of going, oh, no, this is different. We can go, oh, this is different. Yes. So the awareness and observation and putting yourself in that state of curiosity and, and witnessing rather than judging what's happening. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. this is new. Oh, look at that. Mm, that wasn't there before. Here it is now. Oh yeah, I'm doing it. I'm, 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 I'm walking through the threshold. I'm actually touching that handle without a glove on, you know, or whatever it is. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think I get what you're saying. Let's take a pause. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Dr. Judson Brewer, PhD. We're also, uh, he's, he's back. This is the second time he's been on the show and I love talking with you, Judd, but let's take that pause. We're talking about your book, Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. To connect with Dr. Judd, please do so at drjudd.com. On Twitter, Judd Brewer. On Facebook, Dr. Judd Apps. And on Instagram, Dr. Period Judd. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a commitment. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back. Let's get back to the conversation with Dr. Judson Brewer. We're talking about relieving anxiety and breaking free from busyness. Dr. Judd, we are in need of some mind healing here. You and I were talking on the break about re-entry anxiety, about, you know, going back to work or the new normal in the professional world. And I'd love for you to hit some more points about the distress that so many of us are feeling right now. Well, I like what you mentioned earlier around that two foot toss where, you know, our minds are often spinning out of control with trying to, you know, making this huge checklist of all the things that we need to figure out, all of the uncertainties that we need to try to make certain, whether it's, you know, pulling the car out of mothballs to, um, you know, how long is the commute going to be to, you know, it, meeting with coworkers and what that's going to be like to, you know, to all of the different things that we are thinking about in terms of, of moving back into work. And this can even include, <laughs> the mourning process of you know all the all of the joys that we've established from from working from home. Now it's not always joyful for everyone, but I think there may be at least some creature comforts that we've all noticed that we didn't have uh, you know before you know BC before COVID nineteen, such as you know retiring the sweats and actually putting on um, pants with a waistband. You know, that might be something that and realizing that you really you do have the COVID-20 on. 
but I'm laughing because I'm trying to remember the last time I wore dress pants. You know, my <laughs> clinic, my clinic is now uh, virtual, and you know, it's what what is it? Business on top, party on the bottom. And Absolutely, it say, it's a lot more comfortable. <laughs> I put on high heels for a Zoom meeting earlier this week, and I actually had to show my shoes to um, the colleague that I was meeting with. I said, look, I have gotten dressed for you. And it was so funny because, you know, I've been in my Uggs for a year. Yeah, they're pretty comfortable. They're really comfortable. (laughs) And I had on four inch heels and dang, it felt really good. Yeah. Yeah. So even those small steps, right? Right on Zoom, start putting the chest clothes back. Well, you know, that is a two foot toss that you could start putting on a little makeup. You could put on real pants. You can do a test run. You could role play. Right. That would be another way to do it. Yeah, I love it. So all of those little those two foot tosses can help kind of check that list off as compared to, you know, it's like taking bite sized pieces rather than trying to swallow the whole thing at once and choking on it. And I do think that there's also some anxiety regarding the political climate, you know, that that we had a, a nasty year in so many ways and people were a little bit removed from it because they were removed from the physical office space or engaging with others in, in, in physical real time. Um, and so how do you handle that? How do you handle the, the, uh, the water cooler chat or the, the coffee bar talk, you know? I think that's a really good and important question. You know, one thing that I like to focus on is, remembering something that we all have in common, which is our basic humanity. You know, we're all humans. Uh, Generally, we're all kind people. And generally, we all, you know, want the best for each other. And so here, you know, reminding ourselves that, you know, when we're with a colleague, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is a colleague. This is a person as compared to wondering, you know, oh, I wonder, you know, how they voted or what they're, you know, whether they're, you know, they have vaccine hesitancy or whatever. And then, you know, if somebody starts talking about something that we might not agree with, instead of, you know, jumping in or waiting for our turn to make a point and tell them how we are right and we, you know, we're we're smart or whatever, um, stepping back and really just bringing that curiosity in again and, and trying to understand like their perspective, like, oh, well, help me understand where you're coming from here. That in itself creates that connection and it reminds us that that as humans, you know, we're, we're it's essential to bond. Yeah. I like how you went back to the curiosity that that really seems to be sort of a, a super strength when it comes to combating anxiety. Yes, I, I really think of it as a superpower because, you know, it certainly can help with everything from just mild anxiety to full-blown anxiety to even full-blown panic attacks. I've had a number of folks uh, be able to use it and replace basically panic with curiosity because it feels better. And I myself have have used it when I've had panic attacks. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, none of us is immune. So like, like quit, 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 quit it. You're like, quit, quit trying to pretend that you're unaffected, I guess is what I'm saying. Everybody's been affected in some way. Yes. And we all share one condition, that human condition. <laughs> and that, that human condition includes being anxious at times. Yeah. 
What about loss dealing as we return to the physical community where we're actually in, in, in the orbit of people, seeing people, touching people again, and we are having conversations about loss. A lot of families have had loss and there's anxiety that can come up, not only for the person who has had the loss, but for the person who's hearing about it. Yes. Yes. So I think loss can come at a number of levels. You know, it could be that somebody has lost some livelihood and it can go all the way to the point where somebody has lost a loved one. And so here loss, you know, loss is regardless of what level it is. Uh, loss can be really challenging. And as the listener, you know, if somebody is talking about loss, uh, as we as the listener, there are a couple of things that that I like to focus on. One is around how are we reacting? So if somebody is bringing up something that's really painful, is are we catching that pain through what's called social contagion? You know, is their emotion spreading to us? And if it is, are we reacting to try to make that go away by, you know, quickly doing something to try to make them feel better, which is really about making us feel better. (laughs) And the other is, you know, can we help folks? Can we support folks even through just deep listening? You know, I love this phrase. I learned this in my psychiatry residency. Don't just do something, sit there. Mm. (laughs) Instead of leaping in to try to rescue our patients, it's really about uh, leaping to in terms of being with uh, as compared to leaping in. Uh, so being with their suffering rather than, you know, than trying to do something to make it go away. And here that, that deep listening, that being with, uh, can be really therapeutic, even if, you know, even if it doesn't feel like we are, we are actively doing something demonstrable, uh, that, that being with can sometimes be the biggest gift that we can give. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, the, the secret sauce of, of life and our connections to one another. And, you know, as you were talking about that, the being with, I, the words you know, norm, normalize and, and, and validate come to mind too, that when we're with somebody, when we're able to just be with them through their discomfort and, you know, try and put ourselves in their shoes and, and empathize what that person receives is they no longer feel like they're out, they're an outsider they're, or they're an outlier, that they're just part of experiencing part of what it is to be alive, which involves loss and grief and trauma at times. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we can even, you know, there's a distinction between empathy and compassion. You know, I wrote about a little bit about this in my first book, where with empathy, if we're putting ourselves in somebody's shoes, and their suffering, then if we take it personally, we're more likely to suffer, which is more likely to push us into the doing something because it's uncomfortable. And so here we can even explore, can we walk with someone? So we're bringing, you know, we're, we're being with that experience, but we're not getting caught up in it. And I think that piece can really help us, uh, you know, support people even more because it, it 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 keeps it from becoming about us. Yeah. Yeah, that make that makes very good sense. And it, it it the act of being with someone, in other words, 
getting out of your own way actually does help alleviate anxiety. Like when you just agree to show up for another person, you are already lowering the, the, the temperature of your own anxiety. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you got to come back. We have so much more to talk about because this is not going away. Like, I, I don't think this, this condition, anxiety is always a part of the human condition, but I think that it's a hot topic right now. And how do we cope with it? And things will evolve and change. And, and we are going to be called to adapt very quickly to these new circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. How can we turn toward uncertainty as compared to running away from it? That's something that, you know, uncertain. The only certain thing is uncertainty. Is uncertainty. <laughs> but so the, the sooner we can learn to work with it and grow and be with it, uh, the better off we'll be, and the more we'll be able to help others as well. And then just the basic, the basic sound uh, medicine. You know, take care of yourself, eat well, sleep well, exercise. You know, do something for another person, get some sunshine. These are the basic self-care activities that also help reduce anxiety. Absolutely. Keep your immune system strong. <laughs> yes. Wow. Come back. Come back again. We'll have to do a part three. Anytime. <laughs> great. Dr. Jetson Brewer, uh, the book is Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. To learn more, to connect, please do so at drjud.com, on Twitter at Judd Brewer, on Facebook, Dr. Judd Apps, and on Instagram, Dr. Period Judd. Judd, as always, thank you so much for sharing part of your day with us and giving us some really sound advice on how to, how to carry on and carry forward. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Here comes the break. We'll be right back and we'll continue the conversation about relieving anxiety and breaking free from busyness. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. We are continuing the conversation about relieving anxiety and breaking free from busyness. My next guest is Juliet Funt. Juliet Funt is a renowned keynote speaker and tough love advisor to the Fortune 500. As the founder and CEO of the boutique efficiency firm, Juliet Funt Group, she is an evangelist for freeing the potential of companies by unburdening their talent from busy work. Welcome, Juliet. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to jump into the subject matter here. Talk about the foundational metaphor that really is the thread line through your book, A Minute to Think. Sure. It's about building a fire. And I didn't learn how to do this. I grew up in Manhattan. I, uh, if, you, if you grow up as an apartment-dwelling child and you learn to build a fire, usually you, you do so only under extreme circumstances. So I somehow made it to adulthood not knowing this skill. But as I learned to build a fire, I learned that you can put whatever materials you want into it. You can use dry pine needles, crumpled paper, softwood to catch fast, and hardwood to burn long. But unless you add the final critical ingredient, 
you will never have the flames ignite. And that last ingredient is space because it is the space between combustibles that allows fire to become itself. And this foundational principle of nature is true in all of the areas of our lives, but we forget it, especially at work. And we bring this spark of our best intentions, our best work, our creativity, our talents, but there is no oxygen in the day to feed the fire. And the entire book focuses on strategic and permission-based ways to reclaim that oxygenating space that we're missing. This is so vital for us busy folks out there. And maybe some of mm -hmm. us had a taste of space in the pandemic. That might, in fact, have been a little bit of a silver lining, you know, where there was this mm. imposed pause. And for the first time in our adult lives, many of us could <sighs> exhale. But mm -hmm. how does this translate to the business world? Well, I want to reflect on what you just said, because it is true that the pandemic had a pause. It was, I would call it a qualified pause. It had a lot of anxiety behind it. It had a constant call for adaptation behind it where it was hard to enjoy the pause and relax into it because there was so much pressure for product adaptation, communication adaptation, team adaptation that people didn't really have a recuperative experience of that pause. Some did, some leaned into it. I actually think that one of the biggest pausing opportunities is coming up right now as we begin to return to the office. Because if we were to pause, especially executives, those that drive strategy, we would realize that we have a profound opportunity right this minute for redesign of a lot of things that have tortured us for years about working. All the things that make work people's least favorite part of their day are on the table for re-examination as we have almost a blank page returning back to work. So a lot of my focus with people is to say, can you take a strategic pause right now and look at the way that you work and decide if that's the way that you want to work going forward? Because this is a window right now that will close back as the new normal solidifies. When you say a strategic pause, give a couple of examples of what that could look like. Sure. So let's go back to that foundational metaphor. If we want space in the day, that means that we want time without assignment. We want little sips of time that are just open. And we call that in our work white space. It's the open, fluid, transitional time that used to lurk in between things when there was back in the day when there was still an in-between. So the way that you conjure white space, the way that you call it into being is you take what we call a strategic pause. You stop what you're doing, and all of a sudden, you're in white space. The mirage of a strategic pause is that it should be used for recuperation only. Most people think of it as the, oh, I'm so burnt out, I just need to pause. And that's one application. But there are actually three others that are most, I would say, the sexiest versions of the strategic pause in business are not only when it's recuperative, but when it is used to drive business forward. And those other three applications are taking a pause to reflect, taking a pause to reduce, which I can explain more about in a minute, or taking a pause to construct. And this is when we validate thinking as part of work, to sit back and hatch a plan, hatch a product, hatch an idea. This is when you're pausing activity to make things with your mind. Love this. <laughs> make things with your mind. I have a great image in my mind. 
It's the it's the kind of time that we used to have when an executive would, in a different era, put their feet up on a desk and stare out the window at the river for a while. And if an employee were to walk in during that thinking time, they would have snuck out very slowly, trying not to disturb that person because they knew that that was so valuable. But the the approach to the posture of thoughtfulness has changed. And if we need to be thoughtful at work, we better hide around the corner like a smoker to get in a sip of thinking time. Because if you did it, if you did it at your desk, no one would know what you were doing. They wouldn't have any idea how to relate to somebody just thinking. I think you bring up a very interesting point that particularly in Americans, I'm not going to speak for the rest of the world, but in the United States, I think there's almost the view that if we are caught doing nothing, that we're somehow a slacker or a sloth. Right. Well, the nothing is where we want to unpack, because if you took an MRI scan of your brain during a pause, your body would not be in motion, but you would see complex activity in the default neural network of your mind, creating, thinking, pondering, calling memories. If we don't open up highways for this kind of brain activity in between our movement we can't achieve what we want to achieve at work. And we can't achieve what we want to achieve at life, which is a great passion of mine as well. And I would also think that in that pause, I mean, if you look at what happened to happens to us when we sleep, in the pause, I think something similar goes on in that we're concretizing that new material. Mm-hmm. Whatever has Absolutely. come in, whatever we've learned or whatever we're processing, that we need that sip of space, as you call it, which I, I love the image, to help us do that. There's also another, there's so many c- colorful experiences that can happen in a pause, but one of them is called beneficial forgetting. And what scientists find is as you step away from a project, you sort of release the original first idea you had and you come back to it fresh again and again and again. And that's why output is increased by any time we step away and come back. So that pause is just, it's a multi-tool of fantastic utilization in so many different ways. And what is important to have the listeners remember is we're talking about a very small period of time. We're talking about big work that's happening in, you know, a, a palmful of, of time. We could, we could be, we could be talking about a second, five seconds, three seconds, the manageable application of the pause. It must be accessible for busy human beings. Now, do we aspire toward five or 10 minutes of white space, maybe eventually a whole weekend of unscheduled time, or even the granddaddy of the pause, which is a hiatus or a disconnected vacation. We want (laughs) to play on all levels of the spectrum. But one second, if you and I timed a five second pause right now, it would feel stupid long. And yet it's five seconds. Let's do it. Julia, you and I, let's have five seconds. I'll time it of absolutely nothing and everything starting now. And we're back. It did feel just, like. It's pretty, it's pretty long. If you were to take it, let's say you need it in between a call and the next caller, in between a meeting and the next meeting. If you even started with five to 10 seconds to just be, you'd be surprised. And then you begin to unpack all the things that can happen in a pause. So let's talk about those meeting transition pauses. We call them hall time. 
If you imagine a high school when you had a bell <laughs> yes. and then you went in the hall and then you had the other bell, they were very smart about that. They had, they knew that you needed one bell to stand up and then you needed a second bell about five minutes later to sit down where you were heading. But there was a period in between. So that kind of pause as an example for the zoomed out, exhausted audiences that you're talking to, critically important and not empty. We're using that pause to digest what happened in the meeting before. How did I do? How did it go? What are next steps? What went well? We're using that pause to prepare for the next meeting. Who's showing up? What do they like? How did I do last time with this person? The questions that rattle through that beautiful open time that otherwise would be completely sublimated and we would come into the next meeting unconscious. So there there are many, many ways to play with it. And when you work with organizations and you teach this principle and practice, how is it received? Like, what do people say? Like, oh my God, Juliet, I never th- thought it would be okay just to pause, you know? It's a time in history where it's cresting. There are still, it, it, it's kind of like if you were talking about mindfulness 20 years before mindfulness was hot, <laughs> there would be early adopters that would get it. There would be skeptics on the bottom 10% who would blow it off. And there would be 80% that'd be curious about what it is. And that's sort of where we are with the concept of the utilization of a pause in the business world. And yet, I will say that the effects of the pandemic have fast forwarded all of the, the, the openness and the level of evolved awareness that leaders have about the need for this now has gone much faster in the last 18 months than it has before, because it's never been needed more, absolutely never been needed more. The idea that working harder, not smarter, or working smarter and, and not harder is really the key to our success. You know, that we need to be smart about our energy utilization. And what I'm hearing you say with, with this methodology is that we're actually learning to be more efficient with how we use our resources. We're absolutely learning to be more efficient. I told you I would come back to the idea of a strategic pause to reduce. And this is when we take a pause. Let's do that. Juliet, let's do that. Let's take that pause. We will take a little break and we will come back and we'll get back to it. To learn more about Juliet Funt and her work, please visit julietfunt.com on Twitter at Juliet Funt Group. And the book we're speaking about today is A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness and Do Your Best Work. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. And we're back. 
Continuing the conversation with Juliet Font, we're talking about what it takes to relieve anxiety and break free from busyness. Let's get back to it. I cut you off because we needed to take a pause, Julia, and I would love for you to finish the, finish the thought that you had. You said we were circling back and here we are. I'm always happy when someone forces me to pause. So that's a great <laughs> thing and not a worry. The strategic pause has various applications that we talked about. We said we would come back to the one where the strategic pause is used to reduce. What that means is taking a pause to look at all the different things on your plate and figuring out which ones you want to skip, cut, delegate, let go forever, or shorten. And this idea of, we, we say that the decrapification of work must occur if we want time for white space. We have to do less in the areas of emails, meetings, decks, reports, paperwork, sign-offs, all the things that gobble up our days from solopreneurs to executives. So that strategic pause to reduce means that we're going to look at level of excellence, how much research and information, how many to-dos, and learn something I call a reductive mindset. And reductive, of course, is a word that has other meanings, but we're looking at it in the mathematical sense here of letting go. Where can we just let go? I go to worry because for many of us who worry about Mm-hmm. life and stuff and what could happen or what did happen or what should happen, blah, 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 blah. That worry is really c- quite useless. It's so classic. I, I come from a long line of Jewish warriors. So I, <laughs> I sit, sit <laughs> deeply in the East Coast worry lineage with you. Hand-wringing yes. worry. I'll give you my absolute favorite tip for this. And I will tell you that worry is Worry is hard in my family. I have a mom who is a, you know, award-winning worrier. When I'm worrying, the first thing that I have to do and that I advise for people is to separate worry from emotion. Because emotion is very important to experience in real time, kind of like you're sneezing. You don't want to sublimate emotion. It gets very distracting, especially at work. If you try to pretend you're not upset, angry, disappointed, irritated, So emotion, we want to get somewhere safe and have. But worry returns again and again and again. And we roll it around like one of those hard caramels in our cheek, just worrying and worrying. So an incredibly effective technique is to make an appointment with that worrisome thought. I I tend (laughs) to do first thing in the morning. I have a standing appointment when something is, if something is hard, let's say someone is ill or there's a a financial issue or something in my marriage, what I'll do is I will make an appointment every morning to give that thought 10 minutes of my pure attention. But when it returns other times during the day, I can say to that thought that it is already scheduled, it has a slot on the calendar, and I'm going to make an attempt to move on. And those thoughts return over and over and over. But that appointment, knowing that that appointment is waiting, is a compartmentalization of the worry. And I've, I've never tried anything that's as effective as that technique. What I think is brilliant about what you just shared is it gives airspace, but is not all consuming. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to hear you. I'm going to pay attention to those thoughts, feelings, worry, all of it, but I'm not going to let it rule me. One of the things that's interesting about it is once you give it a slot, sometimes worry will refuse to appear. 
in that moment where you say, okay, I'm now going to be terrified about my finances. Go. <laughs> There's something about is to putting it on the spot like that. It sometimes just goes. And of course, the hardest work is when it reappears all those other times. So the more white space you have, the more open time you have, the more that negativity bias in the mind will threaten to return you to negative thoughts. And it is a method of learning how to be in the open time without having it be hijacked by worry or rumination. So that is a process. And this is the technique that we teach to to reclaim that time in a more positive way. So make a date with your, with your worries, you know, every morning yes, you get an 10 appointment. minutes, an appointment, 10 minutes, free, free time recess with the, with the worry <laughs> go. Yeah. And there may be days where there's no worries and that's brilliant. But if something is really heavy, it's, it's a very uh, beautiful aspect of, of, we teach compartmentalization in so many different areas. This is, this is one of my favorites. In reading your book, A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness and Do Your Best Work. I found myself pausing on chapter mm. six, hallucinated mm. urgency, because it put a smile on my face. And, and, and the subtitle of this chapter is unhooking from the culture of now. And that mm. is, a, a, in, in my view, another uh, very prevalent thing, particularly in, in the West, in the US about, you know, instant gratification, the now we've got to solve it all, respond to every text, phone call, email, blah, 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 blah. And then we get ourselves all spun out. It's, it's absolutely endemic. And we have such a, it, nobody's doing it to us anymore. This maniacal pace and pressure has now become fully ingrained and we don't know how to come off of it. And this is particularly toxic in teams where we don't voice our time frame expectations to each other. We just set a default time setting for now on everything, now on every electronic communication, now on every project. We need to do the opposite if we want to change that. And these burnt out teams returning from COVID who never have really, uh, some heartfelt leaders are giving them a wellness day and that's wonderful. Bumble just gave a wellness week, which is the first one that I've heard about. But there needs to be also a daily reprieve of that pace and pressure. And that is done so by having more explicit conversations about urgency and looking for what's true instead of what's hallucinated. Mm, very, very well put. Let's talk about the impact of this practice on others, on our families, like this, how it mm. trickles down or trickles away from the office and out into the world and into our homes. It's my favorite topic. You'll hear me talk over and over that chapter 11, the topic on the chapter on home is my favorite chapter in the book because white space at home is what we do all the other work for. It's the moments of joy and visceral yumminess with families and hobbies and travel and pleasure. That's the purpose of organizing everything else. So when we don't know how to have unscheduled time at home, we're very limited in our capacity to have those pleasures and be present for them. And I would say also enjoy happiness, like that the, when mm -hmm. we are unable to do that, it's pretty hard to savor and savoring is so much a part of, of our joy, right? When we get to really smell, taste, hear, touch those things that bring us joy and, and, and contentment. Yes, but busy will numb it all. Yeah. Busy will give you a 
thin experience of pleasure, like you're skimming on the surface and you didn't dive down to see the parrotfish and the fan coral and the deeper colorful aspects of your pleasure cannot be felt while you're wearing a headset, while making asparagus, while making a conference call, while <laughs> while doing the schedule for the kids. There's just no, it's not humanly possible to have both of those experiences at the same time. Well, I will tell you as uh, somebody who has tried <laughs> to do all of that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, it doesn't work very well. You talked about bringing it home. There's also this problem of modeling for loved ones and children that's so critical. We have a a tempo at work, it gets into uh, the song that we're humming in our head, and then we bring it home. This fast, hallucinated, urgency, moving, activity-based tempo, and then we can't stop it. So the monumental task of sitting on a couch with a glass of red wine and picking up fiction feels as if it's a million miles away, but if we could step into that, that's the key to our salvation. I agree. And I agree that it's as strong as what you said, the key to our salvation, because we are such a results driven or results based society to cross the street to the other side for a minute or two is what it will take to, I think, propel us forward successfully and and, and, in a healthy way. The phrase to keep in mind is activity is not productivity. If just because you're in motion, doesn't mean that you have produced anything of value at the end of that motion. And that can be professionally, that can be a busy day where you go home and go, what did I do today? Or it can be personally where your family is always full on its little multicolored fridge calendar, but there's no time for leisure and connection. Yeah. And what comes to mind is the analogy uh, for anybody that sails out there, and I'm not a sailor, I'm actually not very seaworthy, but <laughs> I do know that at times we're called when we're out at sea to be in still waters and there are no sails, right? You just have to wait mm. for the wind to guide you where you go and then you respond. That wind, I think, is impulse that we don't have the quietness to hear anymore. That little impulse of, you know what I feel like doing right now? Baking something. You know what I feel like doing right now? Getting out my watercolors. They haven't been out. You know what I feel like? That little, what do you feel like doing right now has to have room to whisper to you. And on the weekends or in the evenings, if every single time moment is time blocked, you can never hear it. Yeah. We're nearly out of time. Our space has shrunk. <laughs> but I urge everybody to grab this book and, and, and share it with, with your colleagues. A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work by my guest today and author Juliet Funt. To learn more about Juliet's work, please visit julietfunt.com, on Twitter at Juliet Funt Group. And Juliet, thank you for taking a few minutes to, to think together. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on today's show. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guests, Dr. Judson Brewer and Juliet Funt, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. 
Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU-RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.